have a story I'm going to tell you about pottery. In mid-1960s, my parents were members of the L.A. Museum of Natural History. And um, they would have invited lecturers that would come every month. And this one particular month, there was one that um, the newsletter came and my mom and dad said, we're going to go. And this was the mid-1960s, so... Um, I was just a little older than this one. I remember this. Um, and uh, yeah, my brother was about her age. So um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, mom and dad went to visit the museum that one evening. And uh, there was a reception there for a Native American pottery expert. And her name was Lucy Lewis of the Akama tribe. Um, so you have to imagine the Anasazi um, were the ancient peoples, and they split up into about six different tribes um, about uh, 1120 AD, so a few hundred years before Columbus shows up. And um, they became the, the modern tribes that we think of in the Southwest. The Hopi, the Apache, the uh, Navajo, um, the Akama were one of them, okay? And um, they settled, the Akama are on a reservation in New Mexico. They actually, their uh, home city, their home Pueblo is called Sky City, and it's on top of a mesa. It's about 400 feet above the, the surrounding plain. And every morning, um, the women and the children have to go all the way down to the bottom of the mesa. They go down this, this very steep path on the side of the mesa, going all the way down to the bottom to get water for the day. And they load up all the water for the day into these pots, and they would carry them up on these poles. Um, everybody would have two, two, pole, two pots off the end of their pole, and they would climb back up this, this very steep path to get to the top of the mesa again. And so they would do this every day. And um, so this lady, Lucy Lewis, she was a very old lady at that time. She would have been about 75. Um, in the mid-1800s, about 1840 or so, the United States had people that came into the, the tribes at that time and told them they could no longer do their traditional dances, their traditional dress, and um, federal government, anyway. Um, so uh, they could no longer make their pots. And so the old people at that time stopped making the pots. Well, the very young children from that time um, grew to be elders themselves. And um, Lucy Lewis was born in about, in the early 1890s, all right? And um, I got to meet her. Um, we went to, after, after this reception at the museum, um, my parents uh, talked to her, and um, she invited us to come out to where she lived on the Navajo reservation to see how she would do this. And so the, um, every year for Thanksgiving, my dad would load up the tent trailer 
and we would go to Monument Valley out in the far corner of Arizona and uh, have Thanksgiving dinner out there camping out. We, we had a little tiny oven that was in the, in the tent trailer and my mom used to cook a whole turkey um, out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I remember this. There was one year when we got snowed out of that place, by the way. Thanksgiving is a little late to be doing that kind of a thing. Um, we got snowed out. But we went there and we went to this one particular corner of the Navajo Reservation and um, the Lewis family, the whole Lewis family lived in this one rather small wigwam and dirt floor, you know. I mean, poverty has a different meaning when you're living in something with a dirt floor. And I was playing with the kids, um, the grandkids, and the grandkids are, they're um, probably, well, they're my age, okay? And um, they make pots now. Um, their mom, there were two of the, her nine children that made pots also, um, Emma and Dolores. And um, they were actually going to fire a set of pots while we were there. And they had this little kiln out front and they carried the tray out and put the, the pots in various corners and, and um, you did them, didn't put them too close together so if one blew up, it didn't end up destroying the other pots. But um, it was fascinating to see how this was done. Well, it turns out that um, Lucy Lewis, when she was a very little girl and growing up, there was still this prohibition against doing anything traditional. And four of the young girls at that time took it upon themselves to resurrect how the elders were making the pots. Some of the old pots still existed at that time. And they wanted to figure out how to do this again. Well, some of the old people that she knew in the early 1900s remembered how it was done. And so they told these four girls, and these four girls ended up resurrecting the, the pottery making business. And, and, uh, the, the, and it turns out that one from each of the tribes, and so this is how the Southwest pottery got resurrected about 1900. And Lucy Lewis was one of the four girls that did this. Um, fascinating lady. Um, and uh, when I met her, she was probably about 80. Um, and I was a kid, and um, I'm playing with her, grand, her grandchildren, who are about my age. And um, the grandchildren are now making the pots. In, in any case, Mom ended up buying a pot from Dolores. And uh, a couple of years ago, I found another pot that was made by Emma that I bought from Mom for Christmas. She does not have a Lucy Lewis pot, uh, the, the matriarch. Um, she will get it at Christmas this year. It's on its way. I found one. And um, she died in 1992. She was over 100 at that time. Um, and... Uh, Pots and pottery. Um, it's amazing how this connects people. And um, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. Um, 
pots and pottery. Let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, how incredible and awesome you are, Lord. We, we stand in awe of the heavens and we think about how great you must be to have cr created that. We are so insignificant before you. How much smaller we are as we stand before you. We feel so insignificant. Lord, we are so undeserving. And yet, your grace and your love saves us. We are overcome by the kindness and the depth of your love. We know that even the greatest things that we can imagine about you are just figments of what you truly are. Heavenly Father, how amazing and how grand and how deep the mystery of your salvation. Jesus and his church, what an incredible model for us. Lord Jesus, we are so lost without you. You are the one that came down to earth from your throne in heaven and carried our sin up onto that hill and were nailed to a cross to die in our place. And this is the Father's plan from before the beginning of time. Heavenly Father, how amazing. Lord, I ask that as we read the words of Isaiah, that we would see Jesus. That Jesus is the one that is the bridge between you and us. Give us the wisdom to heed the words of your messenger, Isaiah, and to understand. Give us discernment, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to um, finish off chapter 45. Bill started 45 last week. And um, we're going to finish off chapter 45. And um, verses 9 to 25. And next week we're going to look at chapter 46. We're going to do all of 46 next week. And this is Isaiah singing a warning to those who place themselves in God's place. That... that there, there is no God. They get to decide things for themselves. And um, we're, we're going to listen to what Isaiah has to say about this. Um, and then he, Isaiah goes on and he talks about how Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. But, and, and this is at the first level that, that we can absolutely see what, what Isaiah is saying here. But there's a second level where it speaks of the coming of Jesus. And you can see that in these words as well. And finally, there's also the message there of the church for us today, that these words are actually for us. So there's three levels that this, this message is speaking to.
And of course, always, um, there are three different sections. So the first section is woe to those who strive against God, and that's verses 10 to 13. And then second, um, God's greatness, and he hides himself in mystery. And this is verses 14 to 19. And then the third part is God is a righteous God, and he is the one who saves us. And that's verses 20 through 25. So uh, let's get started with section one, and that is woe to those who strive against God. So verses 9 and 10, uh, chapter 45, verses 9 and 10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? So here in verses 9 through 10, you have to imagine the potter. And the potter is making a pot. Some of them have two handles. Others, maybe it's a cup, only has one handle. And still others have no handles at all. The cup serves different purposes and different from a pot or from a plate or a vase or a pitcher. It is not the place of the clay to decide what it is to be used for. The clay does not control its use. The potter is the one who decides. So it is with the Lord and with us. It is also like this with children. Children are not to question their parents. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> this is not to say that children cannot ask questions, but the parents are put over their children to bring them up to know the Lord. And so it is with God. And God is the one that decides what it is we are to be. And some of us, I know I'm slower than a lot of other people. In fact, that came up earlier, earlier this morning. One of my old NASA buddies was <laughs> having some issues with some plants he was growing. And <laughs> I made a suggestion which didn't go over well. <laughs> In any event, God is trying to tell us something, and sometimes we're a little slow to catch on to what God's trying to tell us. And that's something that we need to take to God. Verse 11, 45, 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children? children and the work of my hands? The Lord is the Holy One of Israel, and God is the one who formed us. We are to ask the Lord of the things to come, and it is our place to accept what God tells us and to celebrate the Lord. Verse 12, God continues on. Isaiah is telling us, I made the earth and created man on it. 
It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. The Lord is the one who made the heavens. How awesome is that? I love this part. I have one of those great big coffee table books. It has all these great photographs that came back from the Hubble Space Telescope. And every time I flip that book open, my heart says, God did that. God did that. And that's one of the most amazing things about that book to me. You, you look at that stuff and try and comprehend what that is. And it just blows me away. How amazing is God's creation. And how much more powerful and immense and awesome must be the Lord himself. God created it all. And he commands all the host of heaven, seen and unseen. Last night, after the sunset, out here in the west, it turns out that there's three planets that are up there right now. So Venus is the bright one, and it's the one down closest to the horizon. If you go out there and look tonight, the moon will be between Venus and the other two planets. And the other two planets, the next one is a very dim one, and that's Saturn. And Saturn is a long ways from here. And then the other one, which is slightly brighter and not quite as bright as Venus, is Jupiter. And um, so you have Venus, the moon, Saturn, and Jupiter, right in a row. And this is all from like straight overhead down to the west where the sun has gone down. Amazing stuff. God just breathes it and it's there. Verse 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. The Lord sends his son to bring righteousness. The Lord makes all his pathways level. It is all preordained from long before time. The Lord's Son builds his city and sets his exiles free. Which is to say, Jesus, the Son of the Lord, is the foundation of the church. And not for price or reward, indeed not. Jesus' reward for this was death on a cross and carrying the sin of the world on his shoulders, enduring the pain and suffering that should have belonged to us and to us alone. And he takes that all away, so far away, that we might spend eternity with Jesus and the Father in heaven. That's what I read in that passage. There was no question right here. This is, and when Isaiah says, he shall build my city, to me that's the church. They are talking about the church of God. And we'll all be there on that last day. I'm quite sure when the Jews heard this from Isaiah, they were thinking, 
Oh, the king of Israel will save us from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. Uh, insert Israel's enemy of the week here. That is the immediate meaning of this passage. But the meaning is so much more clear for us. This is Jesus that Isaiah is speaking of. This is the end of the first section, by the way. And from here, section 2 begins. And this section is, God is great and he hides himself in mystery. So, verse 14. The Lord, the only Savior. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours, and they shall follow you, and they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. And they will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. I do not know of a case where Egypt or Cush or the Sabaeans were taken over by the Israelites. And I do not know that they were ever brought back to Israel in chains. But I do know that all the nations that come to Israel come in chains of sin. And so once again, clearly to me, this passage is once again talking about Jesus. That they will come to know who Jesus is. And they will ask, how can we know Jesus? They shall come over in chains and bow down to you, and they will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside him. Psalm 68, 31 and 32. Psalm 68, 31 to 32. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. Zechariah 8, 23. Zechariah 8, 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of your robe take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. It's the same message. Ephesians 3.6. Ephesians 3.6. The Apostle Paul. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The nations will come to know who Jesus is. Verses 15 and 16. Truly, you are a guide who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Truly, hide... God hides himself, and his plan is a mystery. We see his handiwork, and we know of his ways, but we do not know him. 
And so these nations come and ask, tell us about the Lord of Israel. All who follow after idols are lost. All together they wander in confusion. Tell us of the Lord of the universe. Psalm 77, 19. Psalm 77, 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Outstanding selection this morning. Thank you. See, I didn't know you were going to do that song, and you didn't know that I was going to reference this passage. I'm sure, total coincidence. I'm glad you catch the the jokes when they go by. (laughs) Okay, Romans 9, 20 to 21. Romans 9, 20 to 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Here's that same lesson once again about the potter and the clay. And this is not all of them by any means, much less the questioning of God. We're not even talking about Job here. An entire book of the Bible about that exact lesson. Verse 17. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. When we read this, we read of Israel the nation. Isaiah is speaking to the nation, and I'm sure that's what they were thinking of. But Isaiah is also speaking of the church. He's speaking to us. And the church shall have everlasting salvation. God will save us. The Lord is the only one who can save us. Hebrews 5, 7 to 10. Hebrews 5, 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The imagery used here is so clear to me when Isaiah is speaking of the church. Isaiah goes on, verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The Lord here is saying to us that he is the one who created the heavens and that he is God. The Lord formed the earth, and he created created it to be full and for us to inhabit it. The Lord is the only God, and there is no other. Verse 19, 
God continues, I did not speak in secret in land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. The Lord did not hide his words in a land of darkness where no one could see it or hear it. The Lord's creation, it's everywhere. You can't miss it. And it is evident for all to see. And the Lord reveals himself to us through his creation. He did not hide himself to leave us in despair. It is, however, there for us to ask the question. The Lord speaks the truth. In fact, truth is defined by the Lord himself. The Lord declares what is right. And this ends the second part. And section three begins. God is a righteous God, and he is the God who saves us. So verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. So this is the way the third part begins. The Lord calls out to us, Come, all you nations, follow my son. Do not follow the carved images of your own hands. Follow after the one true living God, the Lord. Isaiah continues on, verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. This is a message for all those who follow the false idols. You followers of false idols, come before the Lord of the universe and more, the seen and the unseen. Present your case. Was your idol declared from of long ago? Of course not. You made this thing. It's worthless. From before the beginning of time itself? No. Who declared the universe of old? It was I am, the Lord. There is no other God beside him. I am is the righteous God, and he is our Savior. And there is none beside him. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Verse 22 here, the Lord is the only salvation. Come to him, bow down before Jesus, and know that he is the Lord. Jesus saves, and only Jesus. I was immediately reminded, reading that, of the Calvinist tradition and the five solas. By scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Well, you will not find those five things listed like that in the Bible anywhere. The message of those five things is clearly in the Bible being communicated to us. It is the sovereignty of God that makes it so. 
And so here, verses 23 and 24. By myself I have sworn. God is swearing by himself. We're going to talk about this. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. So here in verses 23 and 24, God's words have always been the truth. His words are the very definition of righteousness. The Lord's words do not return void. And every day, someday we know that to the Lord every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. This is the ultimate objective of redemptive history. This is the ultimate objective. Genesis 22, 15 to 18. Genesis 22, 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, in that passage, the Jews see the offspring of Abraham, and the Jews say, that's us. We deserve this, because we're the chosen people. We're the good people. We deserve this. That's what they read. When we read this, we look at it and we say, that's the church. It's the church. And the church is granted righteousness by God. has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with God. And this is where the Jews miss the point of what is going on. I'm not sure that Abraham understood at that time. But at least he had the wherewithal to write it down for us to see clearly today. Exodus 32.13. Uh, Exodus 32.13. Moses tells us, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring. They shall inherit it forever. Again, the Jews read this, and they think it's the Jewish nation. And we read this, and we say, this is the church. Clearly, this is us. We are a part of this. Hebrews 6 13 to 18. So now we get the Apostle Paul. The certainty of God's promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, 
and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, and for all who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope which is set before us. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I love this. It connects everything from the end of the Bible all the way through back to Abraham in Genesis. And this passage ends in verse 25. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So here in verse 25, the offspring of Israel here clearly is the church. The Jews, of course, hear this and they think it's themselves, the nation of Israel, but it's not. It is the church. And it is the church that shall be justified and shall glory in the Lord. Romans 14.11. Romans 14.11. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess. 1 Corinthians 15. 24 to 26. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, clearly Jesus. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Clearly, this is Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At our old church, we had some friends who were missionaries in Iraq. And um, they lived in Baghdad. They rented a home. And they were teaching Western communication skills, how to do business. You remember this story. This is a great story. And the father that had arranged this building for them to rent. Um, by the way, uh, they do streets and buildings in the um, Asian fashion, in the Eastern fashion. Here in the United States, it's the streets that are important. The street has the name, right? And all the buildings are lined up by number according to where they are on the street. 
in the east, what they do is this block is the important thing, not the street. It's the block that's the important thing. And on this block, the first house is one. And the second house that gets built is two. And the third house is built is three. And so there's this jumble of numbers. And if you don't happen to know where that, those numbers go on that particular block, you're not gonna, you're gonna have a real hard time figuring out which house you're looking for when you get an address. This is the way they do it in Iraq. So the oldest son of the family, the man who arranged the, the rental of this building, his family, his oldest son came and spent time with the family. And the family was never blatant about you have to read the Bible, you have to, Jesus is the, the Lord and Savior. They didn't do that. They had a Bible that was in his language and they gave it to him. And so um, these young people, um, they would spend the day sitting on the front porch so that if there was any trouble, they would warn the people inside to go hide. And... Um, because they knew things were, were difficult for them. This particular family, I love this part. The young man is sitting out on the front porch reading the Bible. And all of a sudden he comes bursting in, the front doors fly open, and he comes bursting in, and he has to tell them. And he's running around, and he's telling them, Jesus is God! Jesus is God! He figured this out by reading the Bible. This kid got it. This kid got it. I love that. I love that. Someday it's all going to come when he comes back. That's the end of our passage. God is the Redeemer. He redeems in the end. He doesn't promise any, us an easy life, but he promises us an amazing life in eternity with him forever. And it's our responsibility. He was the one that fixed everything that we could go and do that. Jesus was the one who came and died in our place so that we could spend eternity with him and the Father in the throne room. That's going to be an amazing party. It's going to be a real blowout, and I really look forward to that day. Are we seeing and hearing a new God's calling to us? Isaiah is singing the song of redemption. This is all a song. It must have been amazing when he delivers this. I think about all the things that happened to Isaiah and all the chaos that is going on as he's writing this. I mean, the Assyrians have come. The Babylonians are coming. This is all, he knows of the turmoil. He knows of the destruction that is coming. And yet God tells him, this is my plan. There's a purpose. Celebrate me. Glory in me. Be my people. 
And Isaiah heeded that call. And all of this ultimately serves God's greatness too. And his greatness will be there on that day, of the day of the Lord, when we all get to witness Jesus coming back. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how amazing you are. And how incredibly insignificant the difficulties in our lives. Lord, you've kept your words here, spoken by Isaiah, sheltered them through all these years to hand to us now. And down through the ages, these words come to us. Heavenly Father, we have been unfaithful. We keep trying to save ourselves. We look to Egypt, we look to the world, we look to Babylon. And you want us to hear you in Isaiah's words. You continue to hold us in the palm of your hand. You lovingly guide us and care for us. Heavenly Father, hide these words, your word, in our hearts. We keep reading the words of Isaiah. Write your words deep down inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn only from you. Guide us in your perfect path. Light our feet. Your plan of redemption is so incredible, Lord. Let us not try to smooth out your rock. Lord Jesus, you came and died in our place to redeem us, to save us. Jesus, you are so amazing. I am so looking forward to celebrating your coming this season. We love you, Jesus. We bless and honor you. And we praise the name above all names. The name of Jesus. Amen.